This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and I have today a very special guest for you, Dr. Don Davis. He's professor and chair at the Department of Asian Studies at the University of Texas, Austin. Um, Don, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Raj. So we are going to speak about a really interesting uh, and important development um, uh, at the University of Austin. It's a, it's a resource for the study of uh, Dharma Shastra texts. Don, why don't you tell us a bit about this resource? Sure. So uh, we've called it the Resource Library for Dharma Shastra Studies, and it sort of came together in its current form very recently over the summer of uh, 2021 as a, a series of uh, links to electronic texts of important commentaries and digests of the Dharmashastra tradition. Uh, But it has its origins uh, somewhat earlier in the efforts of the small group of Dharmashastra scholars around the world to enhance and improve and then share uh, various kinds of resources related to the study of Dharmashastra and Hindu law. Can you say a quick word about Dharmashastra? Of course, yeah. So the Dharmashastra tradition, as many listeners may know, is a very old tradition, probably dating back to the 3rd century BCE or so, um, beginning with the Dharma Sutra literature. It is a uh, specialized or expert tradition carried on by um, Brahminical scholars, um, almost almost exclusively in Sanskrit, um, that continued up through the contemporary period in various ways. It was a living tradition all the way through the colonial period and then under British colonialism uh, experienced dramatic changes, but nevertheless persisted in a kind of modified form because of the great interest that the British took in the Dharmashastras as um, some kind of reflection of, or even in their misunderstanding, a kind of reality of law on the ground in India. And so the tradition that came to be known as Hindu law or Anglo-Hindu law, which has then morphed into what we call modern Hindu law under the Indian constitution, has its distant origins in the Dharmashastra literature and the Dharmashastra um, jurisprudence, we might say, um, or ways of thinking about law. Dharmashastra as a genre, of course, is one large or influential piece of the larger category of smriti in Sanskrit traditions, 
literally that which is remembered, uh, but largely covering what might be generally called traditional texts, including uh, your own beloved Puranas, um, and uh, but also other texts like the um, sometimes the sometimes the epics are sort of included in the in, in that in that list as well as uh, various vidyasthanas or sources of of knowledge that um, uh, kind of roughly fit into the the category of capturing the traditions of the Hindu world or the Brahmanic, Brahmanical world and uh, Within that, though, I have um, argued over the years that Dharma Shastra has has had a um, an outsized presence, let's say, within the Smriti genre, as being in in some ways the preeminent sub form of Smriti literature. And so, um, when we're looking at the body of, of Dharma Shastras, can you give listeners a sense of how much of that, or perhaps how many texts? Uh, comprise the the online resource right it is a uh, it is a daunting number of texts because of course we've lost um, access to many for to which we have reference in various places uh, the earliest strata of the Dharma Shastra tradition called the Dharma Sutra tradition consists of four major Dharma Sutras uh, Apastamba Gautama Baudhayana and Vasishta and uh, these, these texts then yielded in some ways, both in form and in some ways in content to an expanding horizon of, of uh, topics and themes that were incorporated um, in, the, in this tradition with the, um, uh, with, the com- with the compilation of a very famous text known as the Manusmriti or the Manava Dharma Shastra, probably in the early centuries uh, CE or AD. And uh, that text, which we loosely call Manu, really changed the game in the in the tradition of Dharma Shastra. And at that moment, then we have the the, the next strata of Dharma Shastra that we often call the the Dharma Shastras proper, also known as the Mula Smritis, for a reason that we can discuss in a in a moment. The root texts, and these are in, essentially the core texts that gather together um, information ranging from. Uh, Household rituals, marriage, daily rites, um, it, anything relating to, to how you eat, how you comport yourself, to then much more specifically legal matters like um, adoption, inheritance, um, commercial matters of all sorts, buying and selling and so forth, but then criminal issues as well, theft and uh, slander and um assault, these sorts of things. And then finally, um, including issues related to what's called in Sanskrit prayaschitta, um, expiation or uh, some kind of penance that's, that's used to correct mistakes that one makes in, the, in, in life and so forth. So um, the range of what Dharma Shastra included um, expanded dramatically over time. Um, and the next indication of that is that is with the next strata of Dharma Shastra literature um, com- comprised of two different sorts of texts. One is called the commentaries, the bhashyas or tikas, and one is called the um, digests or the nibandhas. And these two genres, um, again, expanded the scope of Dharma Shastra include, to begin to include things that would have been more common in texts like the Puranas, 
things about puja, things about um, you know, so so temple rituals, right? Things then about um, pilgrimage, which had been a rather small topic in earlier literature, now become the subject of huge digests. And the Purana literature itself then is cited extensively in the, in these later strata of Dharma Shastra um, as a as a new resource for the evolution of the Dharma Shastra tradition. So I think what one sees is that as the Hindu tradition itself evolves and changes so also does the Dharma Shastra reflect those changes, usually at a kind of delay, it, it appears. Um, but it is a, a, a truly fascinating genre because of um, the insight that it can provide into the social history of India. So even though religion scholars have long found important resources in this, in this tradition, um, people who are interested in history and social issues and so forth also should be finding um, uh, very important information uh, in this tradition. And you can begin to see developments and changes in that as well. You actually preempted my, my, my subsequent question at the end of that answer, which is, you know, who's this for? Who can benefit from this, um, this online resource? Certainly scholars of Hinduism, especially scholars of, of the Dharma Shastra literature, but also uh, perhaps continue along the lines you were just talking about. Sure. So I want to acknowledge, first of all, that the, you know, the very idea of putting together electronic texts of this sort of essentially transcribing um, Devanagari editions of various texts into Roman versions in order, you know, Roman script uh, versions in order to uh, facilitate searching uh, originated back in the late 1980s and 90s with a, a kind of similar project coming out of Japan. And uh, those scholars, of course, are very famous for, um, you know, giving us the Mahabharata and Ramayana that we, we all rely on. But they also produced uh, editions of these, these Mula Smritis that I mentioned before. And the purpose of our resource library is to enhance or to put out the next layer of information sort of related to Dharma Shastra, namely those commentaries and digests that I mentioned before. So we didn't have electronic versions of those texts um, uh, available for searching and for research until now. And that's, I, th I think, the great contribution of the, uh, the electronic texts that are available now. So to get to your question then, the reason that we've been focusing on those medieval texts that probably start sometime maybe uh, 7th, 8th century CE, and then continue on through the British um, colonial period, is precisely that you have commentators who are struggling to understand what the texts mean, how they should be interpreted, and they are unable to um, you know, live completely in, their, in a kind of isolated world of Sanskrit, um, you know, uh, um, you know, intellectualizing. Uh, yeah, you know, where they're, where they're only focused on the tradition. And so careful reading of the text often yields um, insights into prevailing practices that might have been existing at the time. A famous example of that is it's not coincidental that um, a few of the texts of the Dharma Shastra texts from this period um, in South India um, put in a defense for the practice of cross cousin marriage which is, of course, a uh, prevalent uh, marital pattern in South India, Tamil Nadu, and, you know, 
other parts of, of, of South India. So um, one, you can see immediately why um, these defenses, whether it's Madhava or Devanabhatta or whoever it might be, is putting in a defense for cross-cousin marriage. It's because they know it in practice, even though it's, it's either dismissed or not approved in some earlier texts. And so there's a lot of wonderful, creative reformulation of the old texts um, in, the, in the, the, the exegesis of, of those authors. So you mentioned in passing the utility of having these texts in electronic format for searching. And folks like you and I know exactly what that means, but can you expand upon that? What do you mean by that? Sure. Yeah. So the um, <clears throat> if you can imagine, if you have a text that consists of, you know, um, so I'll give you an example. The, the, the famous commentary by the author Medhatiti, probably a Kashmir author, um, maybe 9th century CE. Medhatiti's commentary in modern printed form, um, it runs to close to something like 800 pages uh, and, you know, it's two massive volumes. Um, and if you, if, you are, if you are searching a particular topic or if you are researching a particular topic, uh, in order to find out all the places that just this one author may thought that they might refer to to an, an issue, you have to really put in an incredible amount of work just to review and cover that material. So if you are um, <clears throat> if you have access rather to uh, an electronic version, what you can do is um, highlight the keywords that you might be looking for that are related to your research area. So if I'm, um, I'll give you an example, because I think some of the best work in this area has been done by my friend and colleague, David Brick, now at the University of Michigan. And one of the things that David has been able to do in recent years is produce a series of, of really excellent studies, um, in part using the electronic editions that have been available, but of, of course, his own, he's, he's looking at things beyond that too. But if he's looking for a word like, or he's been putting out studies, for example, on sati, or Sahagamana, the controversial practice of widow immolation in, in India, which generated so much controversy in uh, the British period. And he was trying to provide um, a history of how that practice was treated in the Dharmashastra literature. That work is facilitated tremendously by, by being able to, to literally search the word Sati or Sahagamana or other related terms that are that are connected with this practice, and as a, from that from that he he was able to discern or rather pinpoint moments and likely periods of time within which attitudes towards this practice shifted in mark in remarkable ways, and gives us a much more nuanced intellectual history of how this practice was treated, uh, both positively and negatively in in earlier times, and so. Um, it's that kind of explosion of capacity that's enabled through the um, through the electronic versions. So I think all of us now are shifting more as more and more electronic texts become available. We're simply able to um, much more quickly glean a sense of which authors have talked about this issue, find those places in the text where the the issues are discussed, and then um, hopefully competently and fairly. Uh, um, uh, you know, put them together in some kind of analytical framework that we've been working on. Certainly is a powerful research tool um, with a simple uh, control F or whatever your 
operating system uh, requires. You can see at a glance um, the density of a certain term, whether it's placed in certain chapters, certain texts. Um, right. Quite useful. Not to mention good old copy and pasting for your manuscripts. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> there's a funny, um, there's a funny example of of, of this that I, I I would like to share, which is you know, um, of course, the, the main input, the, the 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 prime mover behind this project, as um, as in many cases in 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 my life, ended up being my mentor and now friend and colleague Patrick Olivelle, who, <clears throat> when he was producing his award winning book, The Ashrama System, was trying to locate the you know all the instances of the word ashrama in various texts. And this was just prior, unfortunately, to the existence of the electronic Mahabharata and Ramayana texts. And so Patrick, in his indefatigable way, um, managed to scan, you know, that is to say, read the entire Mahabharata and Ramayana in the critical editions in order to find the one place, literally, where ashrama occurs in the Ramayana. <laughs> and um, this kind of work, I think, is now... Um, now unnecessary, thanks to the you know the glories of the electronic text. <laughs> the definition of tapasya. <laughs> yes, and, a wonderful and tapasya. <laughs> and it, it's born fruits for sure. Um, so, what's the process whereby uh, this resource is generated? Like, how does it work? Sure. Um, uh, this particular project began with um, an idea that I had about five years ago to transcribe a text that I have been working on, the Mitakshara of Vignaneshwara, probably the most influential of the commentaries on uh, uh, in Dharma Shastra generally. It's a commentary on an older text called the Yagnyavalkya Smriti. And this text is, um, you know, was important enough that I thought an E version of it would be really great. And so I started transcribing things and uh, found myself, you know, oh boy, this is taking some time and uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling compelled to check this and that. And so I uh, enlisted the help of some graduate students in our department because I was fortunate enough to have some funding. And so with the help of two graduate students, Amy Hines Sutherland and Nicola Ryich, um, over the period of about uh, two years or so, we were able to transcribe the entirety of that, uh, that commentary, the Mitakshara. This was back in about 2017 when that text was kind of finished. And we didn't release it with any fanfare at the time because I knew having reviewed it that there were still quite a lot of errors and still, you know, I mean, everybody who does kind of transcription work just, you know, not on purpose, of course, but just makes typos like any good scribe would. And uh, so we didn't have time to check it all. And we felt, oh, it's premature to release it. And um, eventually though, um, uh, Patrick Olivelle got interested in, let's just move this forward. And so he spent some time proofreading that, that transcription. And I'm very happy that he did because what happened is he got the bug. And uh, he decided that this was actually a very worthy project. So at, initially then we had planned to put up all of our transcriptions on one of the, the more centralized repositories for texts like Gretel, the Göttingen, um, repository for text in Indian languages, um, where many of us draw our, our resources. Um, unfortunately, the, those of us, uh, uh, Patrick and myself, are technologically incapable of sort of producing the kinds of works that they would like to see either at Gretel or at Sarit, the other repository that's out there, because those, those groups use um, 
text encoding initiative standards and other kinds of things that we felt was were beyond our ken. Um, and so what we decided to do in the end was just kind of start working on things in-house a little bit. And we latched on to the idea that's becoming more and more popular now, Open Educational Resources, OER. And we decided that if we release our versions as OER, then somebody at Gretel or somebody at Sarit, if they want to manipulate or improve our version, it's perfectly fine for them to do that. And they can enhance um, anything that we work on, but we don't have to have any delay between finishing the initial transcription and releasing it to the public for initial use. We know full well that there are still errors in everything that we have put out into the, into the public domain at this point. Um, nevertheless, we think the, um, the existence of, you know, a few hundred typos in a eight, you know, volume of 800 pages is worth the, um, is worth the problem. And so what, what happens these days now is that the work that the three of us did over the period of two years, Professor Olivelle um, has decided that he can do all of that work essentially by himself. <laughs> um, so he is a, he's a workhorse, there's no doubt about it, and he's famous for that within the field. Um, but it's one of the, it's one of the, the weird blessings of the COVID pandemic that um, Professor Olivelle's isolation and, and all the forced isolation that all of us have had to deal with has uh, led, led him to just, you know, put up a text next to him while he's, um, you know, relaxing and kind of type things in as he goes. And because he reads the text so quickly and follows things, he's able to do, do it quite, quite rapidly. So basically over the last year and a half since the pandemic first hit, I have received something on the order of 3,000 uh, printed pages in transcription from him uh, that are now posted. So the 500 pages that the three of us were able to do, he has been able to uh, produce sixfold in, in <laughs> somewhat less time, which, you know, it shames us in an appropriate way, but also uh, sets a standard that others may not be able to um, quite live up to. So what happens now? And I'm happy to say, Raj, it literally happened this morning. I got the uh, the first transcription of the Dayabhaga of Jimutabahana from Professor Olivelle this morning. He sends them to me in Word. I send I convert the document into a Google Doc, and then we post it. And it's as simple as that. We take a simple Word document because he prefers to work in Microsoft Word. Um, that's not a very friendly version to share with the world. So Google Docs, although it has its own issues, is perfectly usable. Anybody can kind of access it and see it um, with minimal sort of special um, software and whatnot. And, <clears throat> uh, and then what we do is we share that document um, with a small group of Dharmashastra scholars who th then have editing privileges. And then as and when we have time or if we're working on particular sections, we try to fix uh, errors of transcription that we notice in the text. So that's that's the basic process: is we just sort of put the Google Doc out there for everybody to to use. 
Um, <laughs> so in terms of uh, man versus machine, apparently uh, Dr. Oliver is the exception where he can yes. work after the machine. Yes, and uh, I think he's you know proving the value of the human machine once again. Um, uh, <laughs> as much as I, I, I would innately appreciate this work, I appreciate it all the more <laughs> because I made the mistake of in my in my second book, um, The Goddess and the Sun, uh, I was um, fascinated by the, the sun myths in the Makani Purana. I made the mistake of um, putting in sort of a, a, a bonus appendix to the Sanskrit text. And <laughs> I take full responsibility. I was under the impression that the appendix was part of the review process on behalf of the publisher. And they were under the impression that it was fine as it is. <laughs> They're only looking at it. And so there are uh, no shortages of misprints and typos right. and things. I mean, I personally think it's still obviously quite valuable to have most of the text there for, rever right. for reference purposes. Right. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, you know, <laughs> editing such a thing, there's only one Patrick Oliver in the world, right? So Well, that's <laughs> right. Well, and the only reason that I, I still consider him mortal and human is because when I do read these transcriptions, I'm, I'm pleased to report that there are errors. There are, in fact, mistakes. And uh, so but when, I, when I'm working... Is, yeah. yeah. Does he blink, sweat, or... <laughs> <laughs> no, his feet don't touch the ground. Yeah, his feet yeah. don't touch the ground. So. We'll have to have him on the podcast at some point. Actually, maybe not. Let him just continue working on what he's working on. Yeah, don't bother him. He's working. That's fantastic. Um, in addition to how valuable a resource this is, obviously for anyone um, studying or interested in, in the Dharma Shastras, it's, um, it's timely, right? I mean, it's, it's participating in this, uh, this, this online <laughs> wild west that we're all mapping out together. It's also part of this transformation of um, open access, right? Uh, folks can have access to this uh, anywhere they have the internet, essentially, which is fantastic. Um, do you have a sense of the future of the project, or do you have plans for further text or its management, its dissemination? I mean, just Tell me a bit about the vision of the, of the project. Sure. I mean, I think in the short term, we are content to simply keep trying to input more, you know, transcribe more texts that haven't been transcribed to make them available and uh, to continue uh, working, especially on texts that I, we consider important and valuable for one reason or another, and making sure that a wider scholarly audience can make use of those in, in, in this format. Or, as I mentioned before, take them and make them improve them somehow. Use them as the basis for their own research or their own manipulations into a, 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 a more pukka or developed format. So the, um, the vision that we have for the, for the resource library in general is that, you know, we will continue to add text as, as best we can. We're going to do our best to try to solicit the help of uh, friendly colleagues, but also um, compensated uh, students, we hope, to proofread and make sure that these texts are as accurate as possible. And um, we've been doing that with the Smriti Chandrika over the summer with, the, with a small um, cooperative help from the University of Virginia and a woman named Elliot Davenport, who is on the precipice of completing the proofreading for the 
five volumes of the Smriti Chandrika, a very important digest of the Dharma Shastra tradition from South India. And that kind of model will be one that we want to follow later on to um, ensure that, that what we're doing is also is not only providing this, the substance, but also the accuracy that we, we would like to see there in the um, final proofread versions of, of text. So um, that's the main thing that we hope to do. But um, at the same time, I think that we have other projects that could, we've been tossing around other ideas, at least around things that we could add in there. Um, it's one thing to be able to put the text out there. It's another thing, if you're a relatively new student, um, to learn how to read them. And so uh, one idea that I've been trying to work with Dr. Olivelle on is to um, maybe get him to provide um, primers of how to read these darn things to make sure that um, people can understand the sometimes complex um, you know, structure and uh, language of commentarial Sanskrit in particular, and to give people who are new to the genre or new to the, to the Sanskrit style of Shastra some insights into how to read these texts or what kinds of um, additional training one might like to have before approaching them. And I have in mind here some understanding of the Mimangsa tradition and how Mimangsa's, um, um, you know, uh, hierarchical understanding of language and uh, hermeneutics really affects and is in embedded within the Dharma Shastra approach to understanding earlier um, Vedic and um, Smriti texts. So we, I hope that in addition to substantive resources, we'll have complementary um, tools or trainings or something like that, where either in written form or perhaps in a video type form, um, we could have explanations of how to read these texts, maybe with ex examples where we're, we're taken through the text by um, Dr. Olivelle or someone else. I imagine that would be um, that would be very attractive for a, a potential new generation of Indological scholars remotely interested in these texts because it would be a great on ramp, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's I think like everybody, we're 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 just trying to build our field because we believe in the value of of this genre to to yield insights that all of us are searching for to understand the 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 beauty and integrity of the ancient Sanskrit traditions, and uh, but also to develop enough awareness of the traditions to be critical of them too, to sort of say, oh wow, look at the attitudes expressed in this text, or look at the you know complicated and problematic attitudes expressed in that text, and one can't do that without um, a really solid foundation and a really thorough exposure to the entirety of the tradition, and so. One thing that I really think will be enhanced is the, our ability to see the relationships between debates and controversies and issues as they were discussed in the Dharma Shastra tradition that then became so important for the colonial and now post-colonial worlds in India so that we can understand how things have um, evolved and developed, um, perhaps both for the good and the bad. Um, and to be honest about that with ourselves and with each other. I think that's an important point, particularly for a broader audience who might be interested in these texts or these ideas. 
Uh, the point being that the dynamism, the change, the conversation, rather than going back to a finite text or source or authority, it's uh, um, being granted access to a very complicated conversation, a process that, um, depending on how you look at it, a process that we can still engage in today in terms of these uh, values and ideas about governance. Absolutely. Fantastic. Was there anything else about this resource that you wanted to share today? Uh, I don't think so, Raj. I think this uh, we've we've covered it pretty well. I mean, uh, the only other thing I guess I could mention is that um, the resource library does include a um, fairly extensive annotated bibliography of, of works related to Dharma Shastra that I had compiled uh, quite a number of years ago, based on printed bibliographies that had been done. Um, uh, in the field before, you know, in this mostly in the 60s and 70s, and we tried to um, enhance that with references to more recent stuff. But I've been trying to re, re, revivify that uh, bibliography, and um, it's called the Cooperative Annotated Bibliography of Hindu Law and Dharma Shastra. And that cooperative bit is the is the piece where, if anybody listening would like to um, help me work on that, I would uh, appreciate that help. Fantastic. I'm glad we touched on that. Um, I had in mind something in the back of my brain. There's apparently a lot of space back there. <laughs> many, of, many, of, many of the ideas, many, many of, of, of that which is conceived uh, um, um, is, is born into the world and there's much yet <laughs> to, be, right. to be born. But um, uh, something comparable for Puranas, some Mm-hmm. You know, some sort of, uh, um, you know, the Piranha Project, right? It would be mm-hmm. massive. It would take it would take a generation. <laughs> but, sure. Yeah. But, yeah. but the yeah. the people are there. You know, I think that there's a you know there's a strong group of Purana scholars out there, and I think it's the kind of thing that could be done. And what I like about the way that things have evolved, and why I really have been attracted to the OER Open Educational Resource Model, is that. Um, especially for people like myself who are um, established professionally um, and are not no longer constrained a sense, in a sense by the anxieties around uh, tenure, you know, getting a job and getting tenure and those kinds of things, which are real considerations. Um, the OER model frees you up to still retain, you know, sort of authorship and recognition for the contribution that you have made, but not to put it behind a wall that uh, um, disallows other people from enhancing and improving it. So for this kind of resource, I think it's really a wonderful model um, that could that can be used um, or do replicated in, in other areas. And I, I think that the, the level of technological skill that one needs to have to produce what we have done, as I hope readers un- listeners understood, is very low, and one can do this pretty simply if you just have access to a, a university server and um, you know can get these things up on a website somewhere. So I would, I guess, I would end by just saying that you know the OER model is one that I think has proven its value um, through this project and others like it, and that um, it, it, you know I anticipate down the road that it will re- receive increasing professional recognition. Um, and, and in a sense, count in that way that people need it to for their own professional development. So it's a, 
I'll put in my plug for OER at the end. <laughs> That's a fantastic note to end on. We have a podcast coming out out around the same time as this one, maybe just before actually, uh, uh, with Dominic Haas about open access resources in our field and, and, and the future of that and what that could look like. So uh, fascinating and important work. Uh, thank you for appearing on the podcast today to share it with us. My pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, let a wider audience know about the project. We're always looking for help. Fantastic. Uh, for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Donald Davis, who's professor and chair at the Department of Asian Studies at the University of Texas. Often, we've been speaking with him about this really cool, new, important uh, resource, this online resource. It's a resource library for Dhammashastra uh, Studies. Um, the link to the actual resource will be in the podcast notes. Until then, uh, keep listening, um, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating um, online Indological resources. Take care.